Chapters 36, 37, 38, and 39 of Ruth Hall by Fanny Fern. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 36 In the dark, narrow street, in one of those heterogeneous boarding-houses abounding in the city, where clerks, market-boys, apprentices, and sewing-girls bolt their meals with railroad velocity, where the maid of all work, with red arms, frowsy head, and leathern lungs, screams in the entry for any boarder who happens to be inquired for at the door, where one plate suffices for fish, flesh, fowl, and dessert, where soiled tablecloths, sticky crockery, oily cookery, and bad grammar predominate where greasy cards are shuffled and bad cigars smoked of an evening, you might have found Ruth and her children. "'Jim, what do you think of her?' said a low-browed, pig-faced, thick-lipped fellow, with a flashy necktie and vest, over which several yards of gilt watch-chain were festooned ostentatiously. "'Pretty, isn't she?' "'Deuced nice form,' said Jim, lighting a cheap cigar, and hitching his heels to the mantle as he took the first whiff. "'I shouldn't mind kissing her.' "'You,' said Sam, glancing in an opposite mirror, "'I flatter myself you would stand a poor chance "'when your humble servant was round. "'If I had not made myself scarce out of friendship, "'you would not have made much headway "'with black-eyed Sue, the little milliner.' "'Pooh,' said Jim. "'Susan Gill was delf. "'This little widow is porcelain. "'I say it is a deuced pity she should stay upstairs "'crying her eyes out the way she does.' "'Want to marry her, hey?' said Sam, with a sneer. "'Not I. None of your ready-made families for me. Pretty foot, hasn't she? I always put on my coat in the front entry about the time she goes upstairs, to get a peep at it. It's a confounded pretty foot, Sam. Bless me if it isn't. I should like to drive the owner of it out to the race course some pleasant afternoon. I must say, Sam, I like widows. I don't know any occupation more interesting than trying to dry up their tears. And then the little dears are so grateful for any little attention. Wonder if my swallowtail coat won't be done today. That rascally tailor ought to be snipped with his own shears. "'Well, now, I wonder when you gentlemen intend taking yourselves off and quitting the drawing-room.' said the loud-voiced landlady, perching a cap over her disheveled tresses. "'This parlor is the only place I have to dress in. Can't you do your talking and smoking in your own rooms? Come now, here's a lot of newspapers. Just take them and be off, and give a woman a chance to make herself beautiful.' "'Beautiful!' exclaimed Sam. "'The old dragon! She would make a good scarecrow for a cornfield, or a figurehead for a piratical cruiser. Beautiful!' and the speaker smoothed the wrinkle out of his flashy yellow vest. It is my opinion that the uglier a woman is, the more beautiful she thinks herself. Also, that any of the sex may be bought with a yard of ribbon or a breastpin. Certainly, said Jim. You needn't have lived to this time of life to have made that discovery. And speaking of that, reminds me that the little widow is as poor as Job's turkey. My washerwoman, confound her for ironing my shirt buttons, says that she wears her clothes rough dry, because she can't afford to pay for both washing and ironing. She does, replied Sam. She'll get tired of that after a while. I shall request the dragon tomorrow to let me sit next to her at the table. I'll begin by helping the children, offering to cut up their victuals and all that sort of thing. That will please the mother, you know. Hey! 
"'But, by Jove, it's three o'clock, "'and I engaged to drive a gentleman down to the steamboat landing. "'Now some other hacky coach will get the job. "'Confound it!' End of chapter 36 Chapter 37 Counting houses, like all other spots beyond the pale of female jurisdiction, are comfortless-looking places. The counting-room of Mr. Tom Devlin was no exception to the above rule, though we will do him the justice to give in our affidavit that the inkstand, for seven consecutive years, had stood precisely in the same spot, bounded on the north by a box of letter-stamps, on the south by a package of brown business envelopes, on the east by a pen-wiper, made originally in the form of a butterfly, but which frequent ink-dabs had transmuted into a speckled caterpillar, on the west by half-sheets of blank paper, rescued economically from business letters, to save too prodigal consumption of full scrap. It is unnecessary to add that Mr. Tom Devlin was a bachelor, perpendicular as a ramrod, moving over terra firma, as if fearful his joints would unhinge, or his spinal column slip into his boots, carrying his arms with military precision, supporting his ears with a collar, never known by the oldest inhabitant to be limpsy, and stepping circumspectly in boots of mirror-like brightness, never defiled with the mud of the world." Perched on his apple-sized head, over plastered windproof locks, was the shiniest of hats, its wearer turning neither to the right nor to the left, and, although possessed of a looking-glass, laboring under the hallucination that he, of all masculine moderns, was most dangerous to the female heart. Mr. Devlin's bookstore was on the west side of Literary Row. His windows were adorned with placards of new theological publications of the Blue School Order, and engravings of departed saints who, with their last breath, had, with mock humility, requested Brother Somebody to write their obituaries. There was also to be seen there an occasional oil painting, for sale selected by Mr. Devlin himself, with a peculiar eye to the greenness of the trees, the blueness of the sky, and the moral tone of the picture. Mr. Devlin congratulated himself on his extensive acquaintance with clergymen, professors of college, students, scholars, and the literati generally. By dint of patient listening to their desultory conversations, he had picked up threads of information on literary subjects, which he carefully wound around his memory, to be woven into his own tete-a-tetes, where such information would tell, always, of course, omitting quotation marks, to which some writers, as well as conversationists, have a constitutional aversion. It is not surprising, therefore, that his tete-a-tete should be on the mosaic order. The listener's interest being heightened by the fact that he had not, when in a state of pinafore, cultivated Lindley Murray too assiduously. Mr. Devlin had fostered his bump of caution with a truly praiseworthy care. He meddled very gingerly with new publications, in fact transacted business on the old fogey stagecoach rub-a-dub principle, standing back with distended eyes and suppressed breath in holy horror of the whistle, whiz-rush, and steam of modern publishing houses. A penny saved is a penny gained, said this eminent financier and stationer, as he used half a wafer to seal his business letters. 
"'Any letters this morning?' said Mr. Devlin to his clerk, as he deposited his umbrella in the northwest corner of his counting-room, and re-smoothed his unctuous unruffled locks. "'Any letters?' And taking a package from the clerk's hand, he circumspectly lowered himself between his coat-tails into an armchair, and leisurely proceeded to their inspection. "'Mr. Devlin,' "'Sir, I take the liberty, knowing you to be one of the referees about our son's estate, which was left you in a dreadful confusion, owing probability to his wife's thriftfulness, to request of you a small favor. When our son died, he left a great many clothes, vests, coats, pants, etc., which his wife no doubt urged his buying, and which of course can be of no use to her now, as she never had any boys which we always regretted.' I take my pen in hand to request you to send the clothes to me, as they will save my tailor's bill. Please send also a circular broadcloth cloak, faced with velvet, his cane, hats, and our son's Bible, which Ruth, of course, never looks into. We wish to use it at family prayers. Please send them all at your earliest convenience. Hoping you are in good health, I am yours to command, Ezekiel Hall. Mr. Devlin refolded the letter, crossed his legs, and mused. The law allows the widow the husband's wearing apparel, but what can Ruth do with it? As the doctor says, she has no boys, and, with her peculiar notions, it is not probable she would sell the clothes. The law is on her side, undoubtedly, but luckily she knows no more about law than a baby. She is poor. The doctor is a man of property." Ruth's husband was my friend, to be sure, but a man must look out for number one in this world, and consider a little what would be for his own interest. The doctor may leave me a little slice of property if I keep on the right side of him. Who knows? The clothes must be sent. End of chapter 37 Chapter 38 "'Tisn't a pretty place!' said little katie as she looked out the window upon a row of brick walls dingy sheds and discolored chimneys tisn't a pretty place mother i want to go home home ruth started the word struck a chord which vibrated oh how painfully why don't we go home mother continued katie won't papa ever ever come and take us away "'There's something in my throat which makes me want to cry all the time, mother.' And Katie leaned her curly head wearily on her mother's shoulder. Ruth took the child on her lap, and, averting her eyes, said with a forced smile, "'Little sister, don't cry, Katie.' "'Because she's a little baby and don't know anything,' replied Katie. "'She used to stay with Biddy, but Papa used to take me to walk "'and toss me up to the wall when he came home, "'and make rabbits with his fingers on the wall after tea, "'and take me on his knee and tell me about Little Red Riding Hood, "'and, oh, I want Papa, I want Papa,' said the child, with a fresh burst of tears. "'Ruth's tears fell like rain on Katie's little upturned face.' oh how could she who so much needed comfort speak words of cheer how could her tear-dimmed eyes and palsied hands mid the gloom of so dark a night see and arrest a sunbeam katie dear kiss me you loved papa it grieved you to see him sick and suffering 
Papa has gone to heaven, where there is no more sickness, no more pain. Papa is happy now, Katie. Happy? Without me? And you and Nettie? said Katie, with a grieved lip. Oh, far-reaching, questioning childhood, who is sufficient for thee? How can lips, which so stammeringly repeat, thy will be done, teach thee the lesson perfect? End of chapter 38 Chapter 39 "'Good morning, Mrs. Hall,' said Mr. Devlin, handing Ruth the doctor's letter, and seating himself at what he considered a safe distance from a female. "'I received that letter from the doctor this morning, and I think it would be well for you to attend to his request as soon as possible.' Ruth perused the letter, and handed it back with a trembling hand, saying, "'Tis true, the clothes are of no use.' "'But it is a great comfort to me, Mr. Devlin, "'to keep everything that once belonged to Harry.' "'Then, pausing a moment, she asked, "'Have they a legal right to demand those things, Mr. Devlin?' "'I am not very well versed in law,' replied Mr. Devlin, "'dodging the unexpected question. "'But you know the doctor doesn't bear thwarting, "'and your children, in fact.' "'Here Mr. Devlin twisted his thumbs "'and seemed rather at a loss.' well the fact is mrs hall in the present state of your affairs you cannot afford to refuse true said ruth mournfully true harry's clothes were collected from the drawers one by one and laid upon the sofa now a little penciled memorandum fluttered from the pocket now a handkerchief dropped upon the floor slightly odorous of cologne or cigars neckties there were shaped by his full round throat with the creases still in the silken folds and there was a crimson smoking cap ruth's gift the gilt tassel slightly tarnished where it had touched the moist dark locks then his dressing-gown which ruth herself had often playfully thrown on while combing her hair each had its little history each its tender home associations Dagueriotyping, on tortured memory, sunny pictures of the past. "'Oh, I cannot, I cannot,' said Ruth, as her eyes fell upon Harry's wedding vest. "'Oh, Mr. Devlin, I cannot.' Mr. Devlin coughed, hemmed, walked to the window, drew off his gloves and drew them on, and finally said, anxious to terminate the interview, "'I can fold them up quicker than you, Mrs. Hall.' "'If you please,' replied Ruth, sinking into a chair. "'This you will leave me, Mr. Devlin,' pointing to the white satin vest. "'Yes,' said Mr. Devlin, with an attempt to be facetious. "'The old doctor can't use that, I suppose.' The trunk was packed, the key turned in the lock, and the porter in waiting, preceded by Mr. Devlin, shouldered his burden and followed him downstairs and out into the street. And there sat Ruth, with the tears dropping one after another upon the wedding vest, over which her fingers strayed caressingly. Oh, where was the heart which had throbbed so tumultuously beneath it on that happy bridal eve, with what a dirge-like echo fell upon her tortured ear those bridal words, Till death do us part. End of chapter 39